Hello, and welcome to episode 389 of the Crate and Crowbar, a gaming podcast being recorded on the 5th of January, 2022. I'm Marsh Davis, and I am joined by Graham Smith. Hello. Graham. Welcome, and Happy New Year. Thank you. Happy New Year to you. What have you been doing in the interval between our podcasts? Um, 50-50 between parenting and absolutely nothing. Hardcore doing nothing at all, which has been, <laughs> been very nice. Um, I don't often, don't often get time off work of such a long duration, but I had two and a half weeks off. Uh, and I spent it well by, like, for example, watching 30 episodes of Community that I've seen before three times. <laughs> <laughs> is that rewarding yes <laughs> <laughs> okay <laughs> yes I, I i like i say i i don't get a lot of time off to just do nothing at all and it's only unrewarding on the days when i don't fully commit to it on the days where i feel like i should be productive but don't really want to be productive and so spend it kind of dithering about what to do if I just commit really early to a day spent on the couch watching 20 episodes of a of TV show I've seen before back to back, then yes, I feel like I've accomplished something. <laughs> How about you? What have you been doing? Uh, well, I uh, ate myself into a coma, uh, as is the obligatory way of uh, dealing with Christmas. And uh, I watched, I just finished watching all of the Lord of the Rings films again. The originals, not the extended versions, because they didn't need any further extending. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I did this because I, I listened to um, uh, Friends of the Pod, Sam Roberts and Matt Castle's podcast about uh, the Lord of the Rings games. There's that's the back page pod, which is a very good podcast. And um, uh, they started by having a sort of like trip down memory lane about the, the films. I thought, oh, maybe it's time to revisit those. And... Uh, it turns out I fucking hate them. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> uh, I, I, yeah, I don't. I don't know what's happened. I remember sort of being kind of uh, uh, not exactly stick in the mud, but I had a, a strong reaction to them when I when they first came out because the the book was such an important sort of like what you know uh, like Dune was as well. It was one of the books that my dad read to me as a kid, and so you know it, it held a special place in my heart. And so I had all this kind of idea of how it should be adapted and on top of that like the the the, the animated version uh, by ralph bakshi that was something that uh, whenever i was ill from school i would always watch that and hmm. or the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy tv series and so <laughs> and so that is sort of like seared uh into my brain as well so i remember watching the the films and i would have been at like the perfect age the perfect kind of demographic to watch those films uh, the Peter Jackson films and just uh, so much of it just hit a wrong note for me like just superb production design and then you know f fucking terrible big budget japery with you know <laughs> Pippin pulling out a broken carrot and going oh no my carrot's broken and there being like just terrible laugh lines with the you know Gimli farting or whatever it's just ugh ugh <laughs> there's nothing glib or or, or cheesy really about uh, the the earlier adaptation or the original book, I don't think. And those Peter Jackson films are just full of full of uh, just grotesque <laughs> trash humour, <laughs> which has no place. Um, but, you know, uh, 
And now, now, but but even so, I kind of like the films. And now watching them again, I, I'm sort of fairly suspicious of the the text itself as well now, in a way mm. which I didn't expect. Like obviously, Peter Jackson, I have my reservations about how he's handled it, but like just the just the stuff about you know, <laughs> uh, the stuff that that uh, Wizards of the Coast have been struggling with, and you know D and D in general. Mm where you know, races are depicted and it's really interesting watching it now because there's re- a very very strong racial coding in a in a lot of uh lord of the rings in terms of you know the orcs being very dark-skinned and all of the humans who join sauron's cause are coded very distinctly as being uh either kind of arabic or or oriental in some sort of suspicious way uh and yeah. uh it's it's hard to that doesn't sit quite well with me and uh also um you know the cap doffing oh mr frodo mr frodo i'm a, i'm a, i'm a gardener stuff is all a bit sort of uh, riddled with class anxiety for me now as well so <laughs> the whole thing was was quite unwatchable um oh dear. Yeah. see i I also listened to the back page and I actually just started listening to that episode earlier on this evening. Um, so I've, I've listened to their takes and I also rewatched the first two Lord of the Rings movies earlier this year, just a few months ago, I watched fellowship and the two terrors and I lost my appetite, I guess, before I watched the third one. Um, but I still enjoyed fellowship. Like I, I still well, like, it's such a, propulsive movie it has so much momentum because essentially it's just a three hour long chase sequence where every set piece they are being they are fleeing from one disaster directly into the next uh and so as an action movie it's it's got that it's got a great pace to it despite the fact Mm. it's such a long film and then it has you know like plot momentum just from the fact that you're meeting these characters from this for the first time they're meeting each other for the first time they they are all the characters are pretty much all together for a big chunk of the movie before they get split up at the end um that that just momentum carried it through a lot for me and then the two towers i thought didn't didn't work quite as well um in terms of yeah, the kind of the, the races having innate qualities uh, or, or properties, I, f- I find myself, I suppose, forgiving it in Lord of the Rings because it was written such a long time ago. I find that stuff more objectionable in modern fantasy stories like uh, Harry Potter, for example, which right. has a lot of that in both the fantasy races. So for example, you know, all of the bankers are a particular type of like small goblin men with big noses. Um, and then just the, the sorting hat that like yeah, f- filters yeah. children into, <laughs> into different um, school groups yeah, based I, on I, who knows what. Well, exactly. I never really got into Harry Potter even as a kid, but the, the sorting hat is the part that I find really objectionable. <laughs> you know, the idea that your innate qualities can be decided right then and there. Uh, it baffles me that people actively subscribe to the qualities, <laughs> uh, you know, to the, the idea of being sorted. Like, there's a whole fandom based around mm. identifying as Slytherin or whatever. <laughs> like, why, why? Out of all the houses, you're identifying as the twat house there. That's not good. <laughs> It's not yeah. goth, it's just arsehole. 
Um, the Harry Potter books also go further because they're also just our like characters, which are simply stereotypes. Like the only Irish kid in the class is constantly blowing things up by accident. Oh yeah. Uh, um, you know, and yeah, there's, there's other stuff like that. I think there's like Indian classmates or Pakistani classmates and that sort of stuff. It's just, mm, the more, the more you pick at it, the more troubling it becomes. <laughs> Never revisit anything. Just plow constantly into the future. Except for community. Which, oh, yeah. yeah really? Is that, is that un, untroubling? <laughs> now? Oh, well, no. <laughs> I can't say that because, you know, it's certainly its crater is not untroubling. Mm. Um, although he seems to mostly have survived the various scandals, uh, which we won't go into. But I think the show holds up based on my rewatch of so far the first two seasons i should go back to it at some point i do remember it souring on it at a certain point so i but i can't remember what point that was i will say that um i guess the bit, a bit of it i'm uncomfortable with is chevy chase's character pierce he's mm. the he's the old man of the group and he is depicted as being racist and homophobic and deeply out of touch and so on and so on and he is you know meant to be sort of the butt of the joke and yet it is so constant and pervasive from the very first episode that it can't help but feel like the show having its cake and eating it mm. like you know as pierce makes just constant jokes about other characters being gay for example mm. um but yeah. Mm. Oh well, yeah. Okay, you were right. There's no Never go back to anything to, uh, <laughs> to, to Mario. <laughs> well, we've been playing over the Christmas holiday. <laughs> the segue is that they're making a Mario movie, uh, and they've announced that Chris Pratt is doing the voice of Mario, and Chris Pratt has said that he's not going to do an Italian accent, um, which the internet was very upset about. They were very upset that. Chris Pratt was was voicing the role of Mario first of all, but they're also now upset that he's not being true to the character. Uh, but to me, I'm not sure that Chris Pratt doing a really broad Italian stereotype <laughs> for 100 minutes is what I want from the cinema experience. I think the games get away with it because. Most of Mario's dialogue, well, first of all, Mario doesn't really have very much dialogue. And when he does have dialogue, it's mostly not voiced. He just says Yahoo and like that's, that's, that's pretty much it. Um, I'm not sure you want him going, it's a me or spread across 90 minutes of film. Um, so there's the segue. I'm defending Chris, <laughs> <laughs> I'm defending Chris Pratt. Oh no. Um, <laughs> But yeah, so over Christmas, the game I played most was New Super Mario Brothers U Deluxe, which is just a mess of a name. Um, it's uh, the most recent 2D Mario game for the Nintendo Switch, and it's a Switch port of a Wii U game, hence the fact it's got U still on the title. Um and it's part of the new Super Mario Brothers series, which stretches back to, I think, the original DS. So there was mm. a DS game, a Wii game, a 3DS game, and then a Wii U game. Uh, there's not been a Switch game in the series other than, as far as I know, this this port, this deluxe port. Um, and I, the reason I got it is because uh, 
Ira wanted Mario stuff. Um, he has, he first saw Mario on YouTube, like videos of other people playing Mario games. Doesn't watch a lot of stuff on YouTube, but he's got the YouTube kids app and we let him watch that sometimes. And so he'd seen like absorbed basically that Mario was a thing and Mario characters existed via YouTube before any other encounter with Mario as an existing property. Um, and so I got him Mario Run for the iPad, uh, which he was enjoying. Like Mario Run, if you've not played it, is an, uh, is an auto runner. So all mm. you have to do basically is jump. Um, and so like most of the stuff he plays on iPad, they're creative games or they're educational games or they're exploratory. They're, they're not really about challenge and failure because he's five years old for context. Uh, and, you know... He's getting better at it now, but three three year olds and four year olds don't necessarily do that well with frustration or skill based challenges and mm. reflexes and all this sort of stuff. Yeah, but he, or been, me. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I'm going to come back to that later. Um, but he's you know he's been playing Mario Run and it's been a good entry point because it's just one one button controls essentially. You just tap the screen in order to jump, uh, and he's been progressing through that. He's been enjoying it. And he knew that there were other Mario games and he wanted other Mario games. And I was explaining, well, they're for the Nintendo Switch. Now, I have a Nintendo Switch, but he didn't know that. <laughs> like, he's never played it or seen me play it. Because, to be honest, I don't play it very much. It's, like, tucked away behind the TV and I just, mm. yeah, I just never touch it. And But for Christmas, Santa brought him New Super Mario Brothers U Deluxe, which Ira wisely just calls Mario Switch. <laughs> is, is, is a better game for it. Um, and so this is basically the first game he's ever played with a controller oh, wow. uh, um, rather than a touchscreen. And the reason I picked it was I thought, well, it's a 2D Mario game. So like the, the controls should hopefully be relatively simple. It's just pushing right and pressing a button to jump. That's, you know, one extra control over and above what he's been doing on the iPad, essentially. Uh, and so I thought it would be a good gateway. Uh, and it has been, actually, like, uh, for a bunch of different reasons. Like, as well as being relatively simple to control, you can also play the entire game cooperatively with up to four players. So Ira and I play it together. And so it's become this kind of, like, shared bonding experience over the Christmas holidays. We've, we've, we've actually beaten the game. We finished it. We played through the entire thing. Uh, and it also has a character in it called Nabbit, uh, which I don't know if Nabbit has existed in previous Mario games. I've never encountered him, but he's no. like this, this, um, girl-faced rabbit blob who <laughs> exists in the single player story as like a thief character. He seems to like steal items or run away. And after you complete levels, Nabbit, um, uh, Nabbit, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, Nabbit may appear on that level if you replay it, and like the challenge is to catch Nabbit to get to the end of the level before he does. Um, but he's then also playable, basically, if you're doing it cooperatively. And Nabbit is good because he doesn't take any damage from enemies. He could still die if he fails a jump or if he hits any of the kind of 
environmental threats, of which there are many in a Mario game. So, like, if, if Ira misses a jump and falls, and falls off the bottom of the level, then he's dead. Uh, if he's, you know, if we're on, like, a, a lava world, if he touches the lava, you know, and there's often, like, lava levels where the lava raises up and down in waves and stuff like that. If he touches that, then he's dead. But also because you're playing it cooperatively, if you die... It's not game over. You come back in a bubble and then your co-op partner can pop the bubble and you can resume playing. It is possible for both players to, to run out of, to both run out of lives and get a game over and, 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 and you can fail that way. Hmm. But in general, it's quite forgiving. Hmm. I seem to, did it, it stole that idea from the Rayman series, right? I seem to remember. Rayman did do that. I don't know if, if Rayman did it first. I'm not, I'm not sure. It sounds plausible. Certainly, Nabbit has kind of rabid energy as well. Right. <laughs> um, but it's it's been really a really good kind of gateway game for him. But these kind of uh, elements of it being forgiving are definitely needed because Mario is just otherwise not a kid's game. <laughs> it's really fucking difficult. <laughs> and I say this as someone like I've played and completed Celeste and Super Meat Boy and the end is nigh and like lots of other hard platformers. I play N plus plus and all this sort of stuff. I completed Splunky and Splunky two a bunch of times and so on. Uh, like Mario in, in some ways is harder <laughs> than some of those games. Um, like it's such a colorful, inviting world. Like there's nothing in new super Mario brothers, U deluxe, which is really new. Like it feels like a Mario 2d game as I played it, I think the last Mario game I played, like 2D Mario, sorry, was over 10 years ago. This could have been a game from then, or it could have been a game that I played, you know, on the SNES when I was 10. Um, it's a grass world, then a desert world, then a slippy slidey ice world, then a water mm-hmm. world, then a lava world. And within it, most of the enemies you encounter are enemies you'll have been encountering in Mario games since the beginning of time. Um, but it's, it's just lush and colorful and warm. And it does like introduce levels like, oh, there are lava waves on this level. And so like, there's a new challenge you have to adapt to on that particular level. And so like, there's little twists on it that keep it, keep it interesting and nothing ever overstays its welcome. Each level, you know, if you're good, if you, you know, survive from beginning to end of a particular level, you'll have completed that level in a couple of minutes each world is between five and 10 levels long. And so, you, should, you know, there's real pace to it. Nothing overstays its welcome. You're constantly making progress. But it also, like, I think I just, my default assumption is that Nintendo's are the, the masters of game design and they get a lot of credit for like making games that are family-friendly and... Uh, pioneering certain game design techniques and rule of threes and all this sort of stuff. But they're really bad in this Mario game, at least in onboarding players to anything. For example, like I didn't realize that there was a run button (laughs) until (laughs) I'd almost completed the game. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I probably probably 2d mario has always had a run button and this is a thing that i should have remembered from when i was 11 years old but also probably when i was 11 years old i probably didn't know then there was a run button because i was really bad at games back then and so i possibly just never discovered it um 
but like not knowing that there's a run button and that if you if you run and then jump you jump further the game's a lot harder if you don't know that <laughs> there's right, some yeah. jumps that like both Ira and I were like trying for ages to do a particular jump before we finally got it and then knowing now like three quarters of the way through the game when I discovered that hey you can run <laughs> um oh, that jump would have been super easy. Like we, we spent two minutes trying this jump over and over and over again before we made it. It turns out we didn't have to. There's, there's, there's loads of little things like that. Do you um, think it's just because there's such a, a legacy uh, or, a, or an assumed legacy of knowledge from preceding games that they feel they don't need to deal with these sorts of things? Maybe, but then I even it's bad, maybe. I think it's a bit of both. Like yeah. I think there's a general assumption that oh, you know this is the fourth game in a series, and Mario is very popular. You know, everyone. You know, I was looking up the sales figures; they all sell millions and millions of copies. And so maybe they just don't have to think about this stuff. But even in this game, like I'm pretty sure Nabbit is a new character, or at the very least, being able to play as Nabbit is is a new thing. And he doesn't take damage from enemies, but there's nothing that explains that. Like you select Nabbit from the character select screen and it says very easy on him so that you know that he is in some way easier, but you don't know in what way he's easier. And there's, there's other details to that. So like if Mario picks up a, you know, a power up, like a a mushroom, he gets bigger or a a flower, then he, you know, he can shoot fireballs. Nabbit can't use those power ups. And so we played through the entire game and I would get the power ups because they didn't do anything for Ira until again, about 80% of the way through the game when we realized that if Ira picked up the power ups, then at the end of the level, they were converted into extra lives. So, you know, if he picks up the the fire flower or the the mushroom or whatever, Hmm. then at the end of the, the level, if we manage to survive that long, then, you know, he might have picked up five power ups. He gets five extra lives. Well, it's very that's, unintuitive if that's not flagged as you pick up the things. Nope. There wasn't anything to suggest. Like, there was, if he picked up a thing, then there would be, like, a little number that would appear above his head, like, a thousand or whatever. And we thought, okay, we're getting, like, points for that. You know, if, if you collect coins, you get points, you complete the level. Depending on how high you jump up the flag, you get points. There's points for everything in the Mario game. So it didn't seem... We didn't care about that. We were just trying to get to the end. Uh, it would have been much easier to get to the end if we'd known that my five-year-old <laughs> could have had like basically infinite lives at that point because every level is just packed with those power-ups. And most, you know, once I've got picked up a flower and I can shoot fireballs, I don't need three more of those, but there will be three more of them on the level, and I can have all of them. <laughs> like That would have been a really good thing to know, Nintendo. Um, but there's all sorts of things like that. And then it's also just because they are introducing new concepts and none of them are particularly wild or inventive, but because they're introducing new concepts and because Mario, for example, can only ever at the beginning of a level take one hit before he dies. You learn about those new concepts by being killed by them. So, Mm. you know, and that, that, that happens throughout, like you will jump on a platform that you've never, like of a type that you've never seen before and be like, Oh, I don't, I don't know how this is going to move. I don't know if this is going to get to the end of the track it seems to be on and then stop, or is it going to come back the way it came, or is it just going to fall off and fall into the lava? Like, you know, I I don't know. And oftentimes 
these levels, particularly as you go through, you're you're jumping on that platform while there's a wave of lava coming at you, while there's a fucking red turtle thing shooting fireballs at you, while there's like a plant adjacent, you know, a man-eating plant adjacent to you. So, you know, you're trying to juggle and dodge these different things. And then, although it's easier because you're playing it in co-op, because if, you know, one player dies, the other person can pop them out of the bubble and resume. There's also, that adds this chaotic element because the players can collide with one another. So if if I jump into the air and Ira jumps into the air at the same time, then in midair, one of us is going to bump into the other. Uh, you know, usually, they're, like, Ira's going to jump on my head in midair. He's <laughs> going to rocket off much higher than he intended, which is probably fine. Whereas I, my jump is going to fall short and I'm going to get shoved into the lava, which is, you know... <laughs> I wish I would. I could say that I was a, a, a patient enough father to not be frustrated <laughs> by that. But I, but but parenthood is is constantly discovering your own flaws and your own shortcomings as a human being. Uh, and it turns out I'm not, and I will get frustrated at my son. And likewise, he will get frustrated at me, as you know, like I'm on a platform, there's this lava or an enemy coming towards me that's going to kill me. I have to jump from this platform I'm on to the next one or I'm going to die. But Ira is, meanwhile, in a bubble that he can't fully control. You can press, like, the right shoulder button to, like, kind of move yourself closer to the other player, but it doesn't move in a straight line and you can't fully control the direction of it. And so while I need to make this jump over a dangerous gap with a time pressure on me, Ira's bubble will just be floating there in front of me over some lava. And so I have the choice of, do I do I let the game push me into the lava and die, in which case it's game over for both of us? Or do I jump through that bubble, killing my son <laughs> so that I might live? <laughs> I'm going to jump through the bubble. <laughs> and, you know, like... There's, it's an there's... early life lesson there. <laughs> We sort of, you know, there's part of the fun of it to some extent. There's this chaos energy to it. And sometimes we're laughing about it. Sometimes you just, you've died on a particular level 20 times and you get to the boss for the first time and one of you accidentally kills the other one. And you're just like, oh, the switch has to go off now. (laughs) (laughs) Then, And I feel like, you know, that's not Nintendo's reputation. Nintendo's reputation is family fun, accessible, like, you know, everything really well considered and crafted. And, Mm. you know, I've even played, uh, earlier this year, I was playing Mario Odyssey. And I almost completed it over the course of a week. And it's... It's it's too complicated for Ira because of like 3D camera controls, basically. But otherwise, I found it a much easier game than this 2D Mario is. And everything in Odyssey is so slick. Like I feel like that game does much more to like introduce you to a, a concept in a really easy, safe way. And then the next version of it is a, a slight variation that's a little bit more of a challenge. And then the one after that's a little bit more of a challenge. And you just, it teaches you how to play over the course of a world and then the world's done and you're flying off somewhere new and exciting doing that again. And the 2D Mario is just not that. It's just a quite difficult platformer that feels like it's maybe in some sense is burdened with the legacy of what video games were 30 years ago. Like that's how it feels. Um, 
but then at the same time it's got this really colorful art style that's really appealing to children and it's got this very easy mode and co-op that makes it perfect <laughs> for playing together with a with a five-year-old and so I've really loved my time with it, but it's 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 a weird design that feels like it's split between these two different worlds. Hmm. I've say I I I haven't played this one, or I certainly haven't played the port of it. But I uh, what was what platform was it on before? DS or always oh, on Wii U? Yeah, I played yeah. some of the the DS ones uh, in the new Super Mario Brothers series, and I remember the kind of consensus at the time that this was always sort of like the Mario B team essentially <laughs> uh, on these games and. I, I I didn't love them for very similar reasons. Like I I think um I think the the the, the forgivingness of it is uh is, a, is sometimes a crutch. It, ob- it obviates the need to have uh reasonable design challenges. Uh sorry, obviates the need to design reasonable challenges because if they can be surmounted in multiplayer um through the bubble system then they don't need to think too hard yeah. about whether they are otherwise just not not fair. Um, but the flip side of that is that I, it was also uh, a game which in multiplayer, whilst some of those challenges became easier, the challenge suddenly became, you know, your trolling friends <laughs> <laughs> who you're playing it with, sending you to oblivion. Um, I always found them this, yeah, this exactly exactly this sort of frustrating mixture of Certain elements of the game became trivial, and then uh, other parts of it became incredibly frustrating as a social experience. I couldn't hack it, so I haven't, I haven't, I haven't followed the um, the progression of this series. But it sounds like they still have the same <laughs> the same issues. Yeah, I was I was reading some reviews of this this latest one, New Super Mario Brothers U Deluxe, um, and that's basically what the reviews say, which, which is that oh, the series hasn't really changed over the over the last four games. And like the first one, as you say, came out on the DS, like, I don't know how long ago, 13, 14, 15 years ago. Mm. Uh, you know, and then the, the, the third one, then the 3DS, that was 2012. So there's like quite a long gap between those games. They've had time, is what I'm saying, <laughs> to like iron out some of these kinks. Well, um, I wonder if it just works for them in the same way that I think this is a flaw of the a lot of the the Lego games, um, mm-hmm. where the the challenges set are actually com- completely uh, unreasonable or they are actually fundamentally broken. Um, but it doesn't matter because it's so forgiving that you can just breeze past it anyway. Um, it's it's. It's definitely forgiving, but then it will also, it has things in it like that there's these ghost mansion levels where, um, you know, it's the same as any other, if you've ever played a ghost level in any Mario game, you're going through a haunted house, there's a bunch of doors, some of the doors are pretend doors, uh, and a bunch of the other doors lead you to little challenge rooms where the, there's then another door that will lead you back to the kind of main atrium. Um, but there's some of those levels where we just couldn't work out how to exit the level and we had to look up a guide on how to do it because we'd just been through every room multiple times going around in circles. And then you look up the guide and the answer is, oh, there's a, a particular platform where if you drop down underneath it and press against the right-hand wall, there's a, it go, you go into a secret room and then the exit door is in there. And it's like... Huh. 
what the fuck? <laughs> like, <laughs> like uh, you're making a game for like seven year olds, <laughs> surely. Like, look at the look at look at the art style in in this game. You're telling me that this isn't for children, and then you're just hate. Like, there was nothing about this wall that would indicate that there was something hidden behind it. Am I supposed to just rub against every wall in this game? Or are you asking the eight-year-olds to go to Google and type in, you know, and find a gate? Like, I just... Design decisions like that, which is like... Yeah, a lot of it I think they get away with because it's it's just easy enough or the co-op makes it easy enough or whatever else that you can kind of sluice through it. And then you'll just come up to things like that, which are like, this is obviously something that feels like it's designed for a hardcore gamer that is maybe like understanding a, a design language that I'm not seeing about these these levels or is just the type of player who you know, is going to look for secrets everywhere and is going to jump in every corner to see if there's a hidden block or is going to push themselves against every wall. Oh, it's just, uh, that sort of stuff is just bizarre to me. <laughs> but having said that, uh, it's been like one of the most lovely and memorable game playing experiences of my life. <laughs> like that's the other thing <laughs> is that like this is my, my, my son's first proper gamer experience. Uh, we played it together over Christmas. He absolutely adored it. It's all he wants to do now is play Nintendo Switch. And so I've, I've had to start limiting the amount of time we play. Oh, wow. um, when we go to the park now or we go out to see his friends, he takes the, the Switch box with him. Um, not the game itself, but like the the box it came in because if you open it up the world map is printed on the inside of the sleeve and so he goes and he talks to his friends about what levels he's done and then at the park on monday when we were there just because he he didn't go back to school until today after the christmas holiday when we went to the park on monday he got two of his friends pretending to play mario levels around the park like they were like running around pretending to jump on goomba's heads and saying i'm on the water level and stuff like that it's like utterly lovely <laughs> and a really great like you know father-son bonding experience to, to play this game together and yeah i still must pick at it from a design point of view <laughs> as long as he doesn't body slam his friends into lava <laughs> He's learned the right lessons, I think. Just sees, finds, finds someone with a pet turtle and just immediately <laughs> <laughs> just crushes it. Uh, what have you been playing? I, uh, I, I finished off the, uh, the Halo campaign over Christmas, uh, which was talked about affectionately on the podcast in the Game of the Year uh, pod, although heavily caveated. I suspect that had our fellow podsters finished the campaign they may have been more reticent to include it in their game of the year <laughs> oh, no. uh, recommendations because the last third of the campaign i think this has been widely talked about now but the last third of the campaign is ooh, fucking it's pretty pretty stinky it's a lot of it goes from you know being this quite an open semi-open world uh shooter with a, a absolutely scintillating middle section to being a series of very, very similar blue corridors uh, mm. punctuated by absolutely atrocious boss battles. Um, so, yeah. Mm. I haven't played the multiplayer, though, so that is obviously a redeeming quality, I understand. But, yeah. 
that was that was a bit of a letdown because I, I had a bit of a roller coaster with the game where I started it and thought, well, this is very polished and absolutely fine, seven out of ten. Uh, and then the open world it hinted at like it was going to be one of these sort of hoover up all the icons on the map, uh, doing fairly similar missions, um, which was slightly exhausting, perhaps not really what I wanted from from a Halo game, but. The combat mechanics are robust enough that it meant that those challenges were repeatable and exciting. But then the middle section sort of has this the sort of almost a uh, a return to like the the classic uh, Halo Three era sort of levels where huge environments almost big enough to to consider them you know, like open world, but actually actually your action within them was quite trammeled. But you had a lot of freedom. You're going between these uh, and sort of nobbling these huge gun emplacements and you have to take out three of them uh, and you can move between them in any order you like and across quite a large expanse and deal with that terrain and the enemies within it in a very freeform way. But that was just like a really good meshing of the the space that those the games allow and the sort of the, the, the kind of the freeform combat mechanics within it. And then it just sort of closes all that down presumably they're out of development time and uh just like okay yeah well a lot of a lot of interiors from that point on which is not not good do you think um, that's what it is or or does it feel like an attempt to like offer some escalation by like pushing you into a, a more linear or i uh, no, i think it, i mean it's pretty transparent that, that there is um a closing down of their ambition at that point in terms of what 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 they are approaching in terms of level design and the the size of the levels and um i think they just felt they 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 needed to get through a certain amount of story and and put a bow on it uh and put it out the door um and i think that's how they chose to do it and fair play i mean it's 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 all solid but it is a a real uh real slog for the last third of the game does that so like they've talked about wanting halo infinite to last for 10 years and like obviously you know the name halo infinite and some of the structural (laughs) things to do with like the ring it's set on is under construction and stuff Mm. like that uh strong suggestions there's going to be lots of like dlc and expansions and stuff like this um yeah do, do, do you do you have an appetite to go back like if they do a campaign dlc will you be there wanting more of its combat or do you feel like you've had it's had your fun uh, I, I've had my fun for now. Like, uh, I haven't really been tempted by the multiplayer either just cause I don't have a, a, a space for that in my life. Um, but, um, I could say, I mean, it's all co-op enabled, uh, like previous games. So I mean, that's a big draw to go back. Uh, I don't know. I, I, I mean, I'm as, I played enough of it and it outstayed its welcome long enough that I am fully <laughs> sated uh, in terms of Halo uh shooting now but um maybe maybe in you know a year's time they put out something and an expansion for it or something which is super attractive and offers a new environment or something i i will go back to it but an even larger gorilla man to fight yeah <laughs> well you say that that is that is literally teased at the end <laughs> <laughs> oh no <laughs> uh, but the other thing i've been playing uh is uh teardown part 2 Mm. um which uh i think came out just just before christmas um and tear down part one was released at what time uh, was it the 
2020? I don't know. What is time? I think it was 2020. <laughs> yes, it's uh, it's been languishing. Not languishing. It's been steadily growing in uh, early access for a long time, and and now they've they feel like they've completed the the core trajectory of, of the game, and and they've put it all out. Um, but it is a game um about creative destruction, uh, destroying very enjoyably mundane Swedish buildings, um, all for the purpose of creating speedrun routes in and out of a place that you are going to rob. So uh, you spend as much time as you like planning and walking around these environments and it, it, usually explosively modifying them in some way, like smashing down walls or, or building gantries out of planks, repositioning vehicles or other detritus. Um, but the alarms go off the second you pick up the first object that you have to steal, and you usually have to pick up several of these things, so you need to have planned a path between all of the other objects you need to pick up and back to your escape vehicle um, such that it takes you no more than a minute to get out once you've picked up the first thing. Um, and the game mixes things up. Uh, lots of different challenges in there, but that is like the, that seems like it's the quintessential teardown challenge. I think it I, you probably remember this better than I do, but it, it it started off just as an experiment, I think, in like physics-based destruction of voxel environments. And then the timed heist sort of game was carved out of that engine's capabilities later, right? That wasn't, uh, they, didn't, they didn't come to it with a heist idea and then build an engine around it. I didn't know that. Um, certainly for a long time, I knew the game or the 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 developer's Twitter account is just because it posted cool gifts of this engine. <laughs> right. And I, and, you know, there was no clear sense publicly, certainly what they were building towards. I don't know if they always had the vision, but it's, it was one of the, it's, it's a rare instance of a game with a, a really particular and brilliant technical gimmick that then actually turns that into a fabulous game that uses that gimmick to the, to its fullest extent. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It feels like, I mean, if it wasn't designed with the heist thing in mind, it's such an elegant and perfect fit that you might think it was, yeah. <laughs> you know. Um, but but even in, in that part one that they released, there were, there were a bunch of levels which offered, like, novelty distractions from that premise. Like, uh, some levels just have you demolish buildings um, using finite explosive resources so you need to think about how you're going to bring these things down there are others where you have to stop dynamic fires from spreading um and there's levels we have to sort of pelt around uh whilst the level's being raised by an attack helicopter so uh, <laughs> no, none of these things feel quite as compelling or perfect as that heist idea but they are sort of like entertaining one-offs that sort of break up and diversify that game's first half and now the second half is here and it's almost all novelties and only one or two heists. And I'm I'm a little gutted, <laughs> if I'm honest. Like I can I can totally see why they've taken this direction. I can't fault them for it at all. Like for, for one thing, it's they're they're probably personally slightly bored <laughs> of the core <laughs> premise, having worked on the game for so long. And and they're obviously very naturally gifted, inventive people. And so their natural instincts as, you know, coding with underkins has probably lured them away to creating entirely new mechanics. And add to that the fact that the game's like mod support, it's got a really lively modding community. I, I mean, it's probably reasonable that they would feel that that's maybe relieved them of the burden to create more bread and butter challenges. Um, and I think if you were possibly 
coming to this game afresh, like with its 1.0 release, and you're going to play the first half and the second half in sequence, then maybe you too would be gratified by that sort of ratcheting novelty and the complexity and the difficulty, and you wouldn't feel the need for it to, to return to the kind of the, the heist structure that starts the game. And those are all really good reasons for them to make those choices uh, that I absolutely hate. <laughs> <laughs> but um, uh, I think, I, but because I'm, yeah, I mean, I'm returning to this game after some time away and I could have done with being reacquainted with the core challenge, I think, in a relatively low stakes way. Uh, and I didn't want to start again because you earn a bunch of tools during the course of it. And I didn't want I don't want to feel hobbled. I didn't want to lose all the the fun toys that I had acquired during the first half of the game. But I think it's probably quite a specific user case, and they probably shouldn't need to account for people like me uh, who are just you know too self defeatingly stubborn to restart <laughs> a game. Um, but that sort of like subjectivity aside, I do think that the the new things they add just aren't aren't quite as interesting and sort of undermine aspects of the game uh i said that's <laughs> that's not subjective of course that's subjective i don't know why i said that anyway but <laughs> one of the main things they add are, are robots uh these they've got these uh, really cool looking autonomous patrolling sentry robots and they're armed with machine guns and flamethrowers uh and they you know if they see you they will pursue you relentlessly uh with very impressive dynamic pathfinding and they're very cool they're cool to look at and they're they're cool they're a cool thing to have been made and programmed and you can't help <laughs> be impressed by them you know like in the same way that you might be impressed by one of those boston dynamics doggos um <laughs> that will eventually hunt down the remnants of human civilization but this isn't a stealth game and there really aren't any obvious stealth affordances and so it's really hard to know how to remain undetected by these things or why you've been spotted when you were. And the result of being detected is just, it's just a very messy sort of flailing collapse of all your plans, which you can sometimes, you know, rescue through flailing improvisation. But it just feels, it just feels really wrong uh, to me for this game, which is otherwise about like meticulous planning and then perfect execution. And the previous levels where you were being pursued by like, attack helicopters they they also felt sort of chaotic but they were but because they were there were very few of them i think and because they were like point to point scrambles it just sort of felt more acceptable as a sort of break but mm. in the second half like robots feature in a lot of the levels and the things you're tasked to do while while being pursued by them are often quite involved and it just it makes the game sort of stressful in this sort of ungainly way which i i, I just just don't like at all with the robot with the robots are they did the robots only come in when you grab the first item like are they part of like that alarm flee escape or are they just roving around while you're planning before you start um you know mm, i think well they 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 changed the the rules by which they deployed uh across the course of a bunch of levels but i can't i can't remember if there's one where you trigger the the robots Certainly, if the robots see you in one of the levels, they trigger the alarm. Um, but in other levels, you just have to avoid them. I mean, there's there's loads of other ideas in there too. Like some of them, have, and some of them have like the makings of a great puzzle game. But just they just aren't at the level of finesse where it would be, where it where it wouldn't be a massive ball ache to deal deal with them. So there's one one level uh, 
which just on paper sounds fantastic, where you have to redirect a, a laser using these massive prisms to slice through uh, these vault doors in various distant locations around the level. And these levels are huge. And so you're redirecting this laser through huge, huge amounts of scenery and geometry. And it's a really cool idea, um, but it's, it's rendered just incredibly annoying by the fact you, you, you have no ability to rotate these prisms while holding <laughs> them. You can only rotate them by sort of like digging them against walls and floors. And because they're subjective physics, even if you pick them up in the right orientation, simply the inertia of you turning around will cause them to sort of slew out of place. Oh uh, even if you don't hit anything accidentally, which you 100% fucking will. <laughs> and, you know, what's, guess what's behind those vault doors that you have to open? Fucking robots. So it's... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I, I ended up skipping a lot of the levels, which is a new feature in the game. You can now skip levels, um, but or or I would uh, often levels have a uh, have a sort of a, a bunch of optional objectives. And previously, like throughout the first half, I was really incentivized to, to try and find ways to tick off all of the objectives within a level. And I found myself repeatedly doing the bare minimum in <laughs> the mm. second half and just going. Like, no, that sounds that sounds like a lot of work. <laughs> um, uh, it's basically all my worst fears, basically, because like tear down part one, I guess we'll call it, was probably my favorite game of twenty twenty. Yeah, like, likewise, I, I adored it, and but there were hints in that, like the attack helicopter that you mentioned, where it sort of hinted at where it was going, and I didn't like that stuff. Like, I just wanted the entire game to be more of those first few levels where it's just the, the calmness of strolling around a space, looking at mm. it from different angles, trying to work out, you know, like almost like a Zaktronics game. How do I, how do I do this thing that seems impossible? How do I get these six paintings when on my first attempt, I can only get three and it seems impossible that to get three more. And then there's an optional objective where you could get nine, which just seems completely insane. And then just really studying the space and taking it apart. It feels so, so physically satisfying to smash things up and, mm. and watch them physically tumble and, and react to one another. And, it all looks so nice. I just wanted more of that. Like that is good enough to support the entire game. I don't need escalation. It felt to me like, well, what you've created is like Hitman essentially. And every mission should just be about doing the heist or just as in Hitman, every mission is about doing an assassination. I don't need it to turn into, oh, on this level, it actually starts off and it's, you know, already a hostile environment. It's more of a scripted thing. I don't mm. need any of that kind of escalation and challenge. Um, you've already given me a bunch of like optional extra challenges. If I want the escalation and challenge, it's already built in i can yeah. choose to go and try and do that stuff or not depending on my mood i mean um, i did i did enjoy some of the diversity i mean i i really i know other people hated them but i really liked the um the the fire extinguisher <laughs> missions where you just had to stop a building from burning um that, yeah that, I mean, because there's a bunch of things in the engine which are exciting to play with i think um and uh i think that's led them down paths uh which ultimately haven't satisfied me personally, but I, I feel curmudgeonly saying that they should <laughs> just stick to the heist because there's clearly so much potential in what they've built. Um, I, th I, th I think the thing is, it would be reasonable for them to turn around and say, oh, you, you want more heists in different environments? Well, check out the Steam Workshop. That's that's where it's at. But I never really like doing that because there's 
there's not quite the same level of QA. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't want to have to interface with the, the Steam Workshop really to... I want somebody to curate stuff for me, and I want that to be the person who's made the game, generally speaking. Um, but maybe that's that's uh, talking, you know, that maybe I'm just a coward, Graham. <laughs> no, I'm increasingly the same. And, you know, I come from the mod community in so yeah. many ways. Like I used to run <laughs> yeah. mod fan sites and man fan sites. And nowadays when I look at the Steam Workshop, I just feel tired. <laughs> I just... Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm sure there are levels there that are just as good as anything in the main game. In fact, there's probably some that are better that I would like more. But <laughs> is it going to be the one that's got the best user ratings, or is the one with the best user ratings going to be filled with like enemy pinup art? <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I don't have the kind of time or energy to try and find out to, to play. 60 of these like I used to do and to find the three that are actually any good or that hit the spot and satisfy what I'm actually looking for. I mean, there's a, there's, so there's, they hired one of the artists who'd made uh, stuff um, for the game on Steam Workshop to fill out some of the uh, later levels of the game. And this is also a really interesting thing where uh, they've sort of been doomed by their own talent in a way <laughs> because I've forgotten the name of the artist. Um, Extraordinarily talented voxel artist. Makes uh, One of the levels I saw from him prior to hiring was this beautiful science fiction themed level, which looked like a sort of deserted outpost on some alien planet and had, you know, it it looks stunning. Um, But one of the like exceptionally charming things about Teardown up until that point for me was that the levels were incredibly mundane Swedish locations, distinctly <laughs> Swedish. Uh, and, for, and, and since I've lived there for a time, it was like powerfully nostalgic, like these particular kind of mustard and orangey tan colors that they paint their, they, sorry, they paint their, their, um, their tower blocks in. Uh, and like the, the flat, cold half light of winter and the sharp, cold light of summer. Uh, instead, like we have a, like a, sojourn to a like a tropical location uh, which is beautiful to look at but doesn't scratch that itch for me and and then there's a like a, a, a the sort of big set piece level is this huge science tech factory uh bond villain lair built into the side of a cliff face and it looks amazing and it has a, a huge amount of interesting and intricate um architecture but uh, a, it's not really what I loved about the the first game in in terms of its rooting in a in a kind of recognizable place, but it also isn't nearly as readable as a location. Mm-hmm. Like, I, it's so vertical and so intricate that you have no idea looking at it briefly how you would get from one point to another. And it's premised on a kind of installation that I personally have zero familiarity with. You know, I, and it was. It was actually quite a big ask, like, uh, to understand and explore and internalize that space in a way that none of the preceding levels were at all. Even though, you know, I don't have a lot of, <laughs> a lot of familiarity with, uh, you know, scrapyards either. I mean, it, the, the components of them aren't that difficult to grok. Uh, whereas this, it's, it's really, you know, I, I find myself going down a staircase and finding inexplicably that it didn't connect to the gantry that I thought it would, and then then I have to go around and yeah, mm, I don't know. It didn't didn't work for me as a game space. 
in the same way. And it made me want to um, uh, uh, bring back Halo Infinite's grapple hook in a big way, <laughs> uh, uh, which I'm sure somebody has already modded in, actually. Maybe, <laughs> I should, maybe I should just go to the Steam Workshop and see. But yeah, uh, so uh, sort of a disappointment and uh, a surprising disappointment, which is which is sad. Yeah, that is sad. I mean, I guess, I, I guess, like, tear down part one there was enough to it that i would think on its own it was still worth buying i don't know if they've oh, upped, yeah. the, upped the price <laughs> i don't know if they've increased the price um since adding part two stuff so maybe that's changed but i would say that i i almost i didn't need any more of it like i wanted more of it <laughs> i wanted more of the bits of it that i liked hmm. um but the fact that there isn't any more i i, I still love the, that first half of the game yeah i should just delete my save and go back and play the first half again because it's i'm it's not like i'm going to remember anything that i did <laughs> anyway back then so i should uh yeah this is this is all just pure griping on my part i should just be grateful that it exists at all because it is phenomenal uh and uh, yeah there's plenty of what is good about it in it still i tell, I tell can i can i recommend another game yeah um, please do just an un- uh, you know uncaveated recommendation uh, this, uh, but I played. I've um, uh, been playing a bit of a game called Sunshine Heavy Industries, which is a very uh, simple, really, but incredibly nice starship building game. Um, sort of like the opposite of Hard Space Shipbreaker, uh, in that it's uh, well, it's a cheery pixel art sort of schematic two D, uh, and you're given uh, a list of requirements uh, that probably have like complicated codependencies and limitations on them like you can't place this next to this but you have to have an energy source close to this and a heat vent close to this etc and then you have to build these uh these ships in the most economic way possible so you get the highest amount of profit and it's 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 actually also got a genuinely funny script uh which is completely unnecessary like this game didn't need to have any kind of sort of narrative padding um but it's it's got this really nice light touch script which is uh genuinely made me laugh out loud even though it it hews quite close to that sort of 90s teen patter tolerance threshold that alex (laughs) and i have but um uh but it didn't need to be as good as it is and it is and i I discovered i discovered the game because i I followed the developer on twitter who goes by the name daisy owl but i'd long forgotten if i ever knew that they were a developer because they mostly just post pictures of their lovely cats <laughs> <laughs> so i i was like oh the cat person's made a game <laughs> I, so i checked it out it's absolutely delightful and i encourage other people to check it out because those cats deserve more treats <laughs> i've never even heard of this game so i am always up for recommendations of things that i've just never encountered at all it's very pleasant i will also regularly look at um, you know, game journalists or game developers' Twitter accounts, uh, and follow them purely because they post pictures of their pets. <laughs> like if they just post about their game or about games in general, meh. <laughs> don't don't know if I need more of that in my life. I don't I don't really want people's opinions about video games. Thank you. I don't even want my own opinions about video <laughs> games. <laughs> but if you've got a cute dog or a cat, that's I'm all, I'm all for it. Um, can I also likewise recommend a little game? Should do. Um, this is another one that I've been playing with Ira, actually. It's a called World Box, all one word. And it's a, a god sim. 
um, with no particular objective at all. It's kind of pixel art view of procedurally generated islands. Um, and then you can just spawn things, basically. So you can pop down a bunch of humans on one island and put some orcs, dwarves, or elves on another, or all four. Uh, and then they just they start living out their lives. So they'll go cut down trees, they'll start mining, they'll start building little homes. Uh, and if you, you, you can then put down more resources for them, you can pop down trees and fruit and some animals. And, you know, if you do that, then their little town and society will develop faster. They'll build, build better homes. They'll start farming, all this sort of stuff. But you can also just leave them to their own devices. And most of the procedural worlds have enough on them to begin with that they can, they will get by anyway. But eventually, like it simulates all the little individual people on a person by person level. So you can find like a little resident in one of the homes and click on them and you'll get information about them. And it'll say, here's what, here's what age they are. Here's what their favorite food is. This one, he's, he's really tall. He's overweight. He's wise. He's, you know, this sort of stuff. Uh, and they'll, they'll pass away and they'll have future generations. Uh, and then it will like, um, starts to simulate bits of like politics and culture as well oh. on, a, on a really pretty thin level. But basically, you know, if you've got a bunch of humans, they'll form a kingdom and they'll have a king and you'll be able to see the kings walking around. If the king dies, then he's replaced with someone else from, from within the world. But you also then get like someone else will announce themselves king and part of the territory will secede. And so now you've got two human kingdoms and they'll start going to war or fighting over each other and making peace and, and so on and so on. Um, you know, we're coming back to Lord of the Rings here. The different races will, will fight with each other a lot. So that, you know, the, the dwarves, elves, orcs and humans, they'll, they'll make peace as well, but they'll also there'll be regular outbreaks of like fighting over territory and resources and that sort of stuff. But there's also like um, different overlays you can put on the world that show you like, here are the boundaries for this town or here are the boundaries for this kingdom, but also like here are the boundaries for a particular culture. And so you can have a, a single human kingdom, which is actually made up of two or three distinct cultures. And then those cultures might be what lead to the breakup of kingdoms and that sort of stuff. And it's, it's pretty light touch though, the amount of information you're actually getting out of that, but it's enough to like serve the fantasy basically of you having this like human ant farm <laughs> that you're messing with. Hmm. Uh, and, and so I, I, I had my fill of it probably after about, I think I played it in a single setting for like four hours or something like that in an evening, uh, just having a nice time, you know, crafting that world. Cause you, you can, you can, as well as the islands being procedurally generated, you can also sculpt the islands yourself, drop down new forms of land, drop down rock and gold. So they've got more resources, drop down a bunch of cows, make an island and just fill it with nothing but monkeys and then put fast forward on and, you know, see if are the humans going to sail over there and kill all the monkeys or are the monkeys going to thrive or the monkeys going to get on a, manage to get on one of the humans boats and spread. Um, <laughs> you can, but then you can also start messing with them in negative ways. So you can, for example, one of the things I, I basically, I always support the underdog and the humans, it just had a series of really bloodthirsty kings that kept stealing more and more of the elven territories. So I decided I didn't like the humans. I wanted to protect the elves. And so I just 
found the king of the humans and I gave him the plague. (laughs) 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 Uh, Just one person in this world. uh, And at this point, look, it it simulates thousands of people. And I I think the way it does it is, you know, the people go inside the houses, so they're not always walking around. It's got a really good zoom as well, I should say. So you can like zoom right out so you can see the entire world and the people walking around just become like single pixels at that point. Or you can zoom in, at which point there'll be, a single person will be six pixels tall, let's say. So they're always pretty small. Um, but you can just give give one character the plague and then watch that plague spread, <laughs> essentially, uh, because they will affect the people around them. And so over time, they will gradually walk around and you know people who are going fishing will walk from one village to the next village and then they'll come back and they'll spread the, the plague to their family. Uh this backfired because eventually I couldn't control the plague because <laughs> you can do a thing where you can like choose a choose an, a godlike ability that heals people essentially. So anytime I spotted an, an elf an, an elf that had the plague, I would just heal them. Um, but eventually it kind of like overwhelmed my attention span, and so all the elves got the plague as well. But then after us, like a generation of of people having the plague. Uh, you start getting people who are born who are immune. They can't get. They can't get. They can't get the disease anymore. No, it's a little too close to home. <laughs> no, <laughs> it's 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 pixelated and silly enough. Because like the other thing you can do is like you can drop a single zombie in the world and they will go and attack some people and they'll get pretty quickly overwhelmed. Like especially especially once the societies. Uh, been around for a little while and you've given them some resources, maybe they will have their own little militia. Uh, and after a certain number of generations of the elves, for example, they've all got like mithril armor or whatever. So if you drop like a single zombie, he's going to get killed really quickly, but maybe he bit someone and that person is then infected with zombie blood and they're going eventually going to turn into a zombie and they're going to bite more people and that's going to be a thing that's spreading or there's um this thing called mush spores um which cause people to turn into like mushroom monsters uh that then like birth little tiny mushrooms that run around and infect more people with mush spores um you can put you can press a button that makes all the trees come alive and start walking around you can press a button that can make all the houses come alive so all the houses in the world will stand up and start walking around and fighting so it's 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 really silly like you could drop um so sand they to people living in them I don't know. They're very angry, and certainly the people around don't like that the houses are walking. They get very, <laughs> they get, they immediately start attacking the houses, which I suppose you know is probably the reaction that people would have if if a building got up and started walking around the place, the panic and violence. Um, you can you know, and then there's you know lo- loads of fantasy creatures you can drop, and you can drop dragons that fly around setting things on fire. You can drop sandworms in that will crawl around under the ground, and they sort of if you drop them in the ocean, they'll still go around under the ground and they'll like displace the land above them and like make new islands as they go around. So basically over the course of a play session, the the world that you're looking at gets massively sculpted and changed and scarred by the things that you're doing. And of course, Ira being a five-year-old, 
we're really encouraging them like build a nice world help the people <laughs> oh, yeah. give them give them the nice result give them like put down some cows put down some like you know make the monkey island help you know give them some some fruit bushes so they can eat well uh, and you know as soon as we turn away, he's just filling the world with 28 dragons and setting everything on fire and spawning a volcano over here and a geezer that spews acid over here and dropping down great, like, gray goo nano machines that just consume all matter and they just, yeah, like, I, I will make a, a nice word because you can get it for the iPad. So he plays it on iPad. You could also get it on Steam, which is where I played it originally and where he saw it over my shoulder and decided that he wanted it. But I haven't played play this. This is this is this is this is what new Super Mario Brothers has taught us. You know. Betrayal can come at any time. World box, world box came first. I taught him to be a god right. before I taught him to be a plumber. <laughs> um, but it's good. It's called World Box. Uh, sometimes in some of the logos referred to as Super World Box <laughs> to, to tie into Mario a little bit more, but as, on, on Steam and store listings, it seems to just be World Box. I'm guessing there was probably like a, I don't know, a Flash or browser-based predecessor that this is a, a full-fledged version of or something. But it's, it's good fun, and I like it for the fact that it's a god game that just has no particular goal, rather than most other god games which call you a god and then make you, you know, gather up sheep for singing fishermen and that sort of stuff it looks a lot of fun i like it a fun toy look at all these tiny people that i'm going to dissolve horribly (laughs) wonderful shall we dissolve the podcast let's do it before you do that we should just mention um quickly that the creighton crowbar community's game of the year awards are now underway as of december 7th the date this podcast goes live you'll be able to join in voting for what your favorite game was from 2021 it's always fun to see what the community thinks uh, there's a lovely microsite for it designed by kane who very kindly organizes it, all of this every year um, we'll provide links to it in the show notes or you can jump jump on the discord for more information um and if i end this little little blurb correctly you'll never know that i uh, cut this into the podcast after the fact during the editing process um uh, is there anything else, Marsh, or is that it? That was it. That was all it. What we had this week. Uh, you can tweet us at Crate and Crowbar. Uh, you can find these recordings as videos on YouTube. Uh, you can back us on Patreon. Uh, it's patreon.com slash Crate and Crowbar. Uh, you can join our Discord community. Which you can find the link on our website, crateandcrowbar.com. Uh, next week, we will return with a lock-in. Should we say what the lock-in is? I think we should. People have asked. Well, they have, but there's always uh, an element of risk where we just like, change our minds at the last minute. Let's gamble. Let's say it. We're going to do a lock-in on the Daniel Craig-era Bond films. Uh, me and Tom Senior have put some thoughts together about those. Uh, so you have uh, until next week to watch all of them in sequence or not. Um, it's up to you. I've been Marsh Davis. Who have you been? I have been Y. Graham. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a good ending to the podcast, but we should probably say the catchphrase. Thanks for listening, everybody. everybody.